This episode of Countries That Don't Exist Anymore is heavily indebted to Matthew Parker's Willoughbyland, England's Lost Colony. It's a fantastic read with great analysis and top-notch storytelling. Generally, I wouldn't rely heavily on just one source, but my mum bought me the book and she listens to the show. Does she? We'll see about that. Oh, hi, Mum. It's uh, it's Phil, your son here. Oh, hello. Hi. Um, just wondering, do you listen to countries that don't exist anymore? What's that then? Countries that don't exist anymore. They used to exist, but not anymore. Now you know what this podcast is for. It's countries that don't exist anymore. What was Willoughby Land? On the northeast coast of South America, halfway between the Amazon and Orinoco rivers. Willoughbyland was an early English colony founded in what is now modern-day Suriname. How long did Willoughbyland last? Uh, about 17 years, from 1650 to 1667. Hmm, how large was Willoughbyland? 30,000 acres or 120 kilometres squared, which included a fort and around 200 plantations. Do you have any, any other questions? Yes. How many people lived in Willoughbyland? At its peak, at the end of the 1650s, about 4,000 people lived in Willoughbyland. Now, this was a diverse lot, including English, Africans, Indigenous Amerindians, and Brazilian Jews. Sounds like a happy melting pot of cultures. Yeah, I I mean, you know, sure. I mean, most of the Africans were slaves, and the Indigenous uh, Amerindians were killed off by disease, but... He's such a negative Norman, Ed. What type of government did Willoughbyland have? Well, since it was technically an English colony, it was a constitutional monarchy, but this varied over time. At one point, it even dabbled in democracy, described by one planter as... A peculiar form of government, elective in the people. The same planter also described cats as... A peculiar, meowing form of dog. There was the annual election of a governor from among the planters. The colony had an assembly of 21 men chosen by and from the colony's wealthier male landowners and a six-man council appointed by the governor. The governor and the council administered justice and proposed policies, such as raising money for defence or building a prison, which would then be voted on by the assembly, who would meet every few months. For most of its existence, Willoughby Lamb was effectively self-governing, with little input from England, which is why we're featuring it. It might not have strictly been a country, but a unique blend of people starting from scratch in a sort of unoccupied area. It was as good as. Why would English settlers want to go to Guyana? The English Civil War, which had raged between parliamentary and royalist forces, had caused massive damage to the country and killed off a lot of people, including 80,000 soldiers and 100,000 civilians. It also created poverty, food shortages and disease. At the same time, Britain was entering a mini ice age. Ah, I see, yeah. So English people were falling victim to fearsome saber-toothed tigers and gigantic woolly mammoths, that kind of thing. No, it was just a bit nippier. In the context of this discontent, the prospect of Guyana sounded pretty damn inviting. It was described at the time as the land of... 
the eternal spring where fruit was plentiful and noble aromatics made the place smell delish the soil was luxuriant producing an abundance of everything if you liked places teeming with stuff, Guyana was the place to be. Lots of teeming. Strange rarities, both of beasts, fish, reptiles, insects, and vegetables. The witch for shape and colour. Phil's now doing some sort of luxury voice <laughs> ad, but uh, a 17th century one would be fine too. Any other things to say about that, Phil? No. Thanks to the writings of English adventurer and semi-legal pirate Sir Walter Raleigh, Guyana was seen as the new Eden. When searching for El Dorado, the legendary city of gold, he travelled in Guyana and reported back that it was... The most beautiful country that mine eyes ever beheld. For those not interested in beauty spots, he also spelled out the area's charms differently, saying that the region hath more abundance of gold than any part of Peru. There were also, it was reported, friendly, gullible locals who would trade your shiny biro for all the gold, silver and pearls you could fit on a hotel breakfast buffet plate. Got your big plate, Alan? Yes. And of course, the women were described as... Lascivious And all Nakedly exposed to every wanton eye Because if all else fails The promise of a peak at nudie ladies is always a winner Guyana is a land of hundreds of rivers Creating muddy, mosquito-ridden mangroves By the coast leading to impenetrable jungle in land Which the French called A green hell The Dutch The wild coast And early English settlers dubbed The drowned lanes no wonder people who promoted the colony went with, Hey look, tits! So Guyana looked to be the land of promise, just waiting for English domination, and not just because it was neither in control of the Spanish to the north or the Portuguese to the south. Raleigh had also done a good bit of PR when in the country. The local tribes had already met the Spanish, who had apparently dealt with them with... Notorious cruelties, spoils and slaughter. By contrast, Raleigh, who wasn't above a bit of recreational slaughter himself, ordered his men strictly not to take anything without payment and absolutely no sexual assault, even though the women were... Very young and excellently favoured. And stark naked. Actual quote. You can hear a nation of Puritans drooling copiously even now. They're naked. This non-raping, pillaging policy of Raleigh's seemed to make the English look pretty good to the tribal people, who naturally preferred it to the Spanish policy of a watch-Geneva convention free-for-all. Raleigh had long-term goals in mind. He was giving Guyana all these faked five-star TripAdvisor reviews because he wanted it to become a colony named after him, Raleighana. This scheme fell through when he sent rock samples off to be tested for gold, but they came back from the lab boys as worthless. But Raleigh's expedition wasn't entirely so. In 1596, he published an account of the place actually containing lots of useful information covering everything from geography to agriculture to anthropology. But this being Raleigh, he couldn't resist sticking in some tabloid bullshit just to spice things up a bit. 
He even claimed he had found a tribe of headless men who had eyes in their shoulders and the mouths in the middle of their breasts. Unlike Raleigh, who had a mouth in the centre of his ass. <laughs> Either he made all this up to sell books or he genuinely encountered them after a particularly colourful pot of Amazon tree frog stew. But despite the tall tales, this kept English dreams of Guyana alive. But sometimes this promised land didn't seem all that promising. Several efforts to set up colonies were foiled by tropical disease or starvation or mutiny or sailing to the wrong place and getting massacred by irritable natives. This was until Francis Willoughby had a go. Oh, hang on. Who was this Willoughby person? Francis Willoughby was the fifth Baron Willoughby of Parham. As well as being born into a cushy family, he had also married a woman called Elizabeth Cecil, who was from a family that were one of the biggest financial backers of English ventures in the Caribbean. He had fought on the side of Parliament during the English Civil War, but wanted to find a compromise with the King and definitely wasn't into the whole everyone should be equal leveller thing. A new radical sect in Parliament considered him a reactionary swine and tried to arrest him. So he fled to Holland, where he switched side to the Royalist cause before being branded a traitor and having his lands confiscated. He then fled to the Charibi Islands, as the Caribbean was then known, where he managed to acquire himself a governorship. In the late 1640s, relationships between cavaliers and roundheads in the West Indies were cordial. In fact, there was a rule in Barbados that anyone who even mentioned the ongoing war back home would have to buy those in earshot a turkey dinner. Bonjour, remind me, what's the name of that violent constitutional conflict backed in the mother country? Oh, the English Civil War, wasn't it? Uh, extra cranberry sauce, please, old boy. Damn! With the execution of the king in 1649, the truce looked to be on thin ice, but Willoughby patched things up between the factions. But with the threat of a parliamentary invasion being sent from England, Willoughby armed the island and prepared for the invasion, which he then lost and had to hand over the governorship. But... He had been preparing a plan B. He sent 40 men to explore the Suriname River and establish a colony. As governor of the Charaby Islands, which had been turned over to sugar and slavery, Willoughby knew that there were small farmers just waiting for a new home. Willoughby also planned to make a killing from the new craze for white gold, i.e. sugarcane, and thought that Guyana might make a good base for this. Plus, Willoughby also fancied himself a latter-day Sir Walter Raleigh, so he planned to find El Dorado, get into a few scrapes, and hopefully have a peek at some nudie ladies. So, in 1651, Willoughby sent a group led by Major Anthony Rouse, or Anthony Rue, depending on if, if you're feeling cunnery or not, to take possession. Uh, Rue sent two Indian chiefs to Willoughby, who apparently gave permission for an English settlement, apparently. Yeah. I mean, he just yeah. they they were you just said yeah these are two Indian chiefs they're like yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. I was looking for the toilets settlement. is that is that <laughs> just say yes okay fine anyway after that regular ships were sent with reinforcements and supplies to keep the colony going. Willoughby finally visited in 1652 when the final victory of Parliament got him booted off Barbados, i.e. the Charibi Islands. 
When they reached their new home, the settlers seemed completely taken aback by the exotic tropical land they had discovered. Guyana had 800 species of trees, 1600 species of birds, and 300 type of catfish. I didn't know there was two types of catfish, there's 300 types of catfish. This incredible flourishing ecosystem was something that the English had never experienced before. Meanwhile, back in England. Majestic Britain is blessed with an abundance of diverse and majestic wildlife. From the majestic grey squirrel to the majestic grey pigeon. Ah, majestic. But was life in Willoughby Land all sunshine and lollipops? But life in Willoughby Land wasn't all sunshine and lollipops. Oh. The intense humidity, rotted buildings, shoes and provisions. Massive mosquitoes swarmed everywhere. Tropical diseases like cholera and dengue fever were relentless. Parasitic worms ate at eyeballs, causing river blindness. While snakes bit, scorpions stung and jaguars dragged folk off their front porch and ate their faces off. One settler simply didn't like the frogs, complaining... And a man can hardly hear himself speak. The croakings of some are so horrid that do but imagine the latest groans of a dying person and you have it. Though there are naked ladies. It's a testament to the comparative crappiness of life back in England that people in this era would put up with jungle snakes trying to inject poison into them that turn their insides into slush puppies. And yet this was still a really lovely destination to come to. So anyway, the people got to work clearing land and starting plantations along the river inland. Willoughby popped in to check on the plantation, but decided to return to England to recover his estates there. Willoughby land would be Willoughbyless for another ten years. These were good times for the colony. But who were the native peoples of Willoughby land? As we've mentioned... Guyana wasn't empty of people when the Europeans got there, but in a smart move, apparently Raleigh had made the English look a good deal better than the Spanish of the local people. Unfortunately, our records of the natives come from English accounts, so we can't expect very impartial or well-informed sources. What we do know is the English separated them into two distinct and probably inaccurate groups, the friendly Caribs and the hostile Arawaks. The local people were said to be naked, Woo-hoo! save for a modesty flat, no! except for women who had already had several children. Uh, what? The people of these lands lived off a diet of cassava, bread, fish and game. They were expert fishermen and crack shots with the bow, being able to shoot fruit out of the very trees. They slept on hammocks, on low-thatched cottages and rested in open-sided shelters during the heat of the day. They painted their skin in elaborate patterns with red dye and pierced their nose, lips and ears from which they hung glass pendants or whatever else was shiny and available. According to one account, they liked fine gardens, drinking and dancing, and who can blame them? They lived in family groups with a patriarchal head and captains of war. High-status men could have three or even four wives. God, imagine having four wives. (laughs) I know, right? Hi, honeys. I'm home. Hi. Oh, well, that doesn't sound too bad. No, 
thought that was going to end a bit differently. Men carried bows and arrows, wooden clubs and wooden shields. Yeah, probably to protect themselves from their three or four wives. <laughs> During their frequent skirmishes, captured men would be brutally executed, whereas women and children might be taken as slaves and increasingly sold to the English. The English referred to these indigenous slaves as beavers, but were careful not to take slaves from tribes friendly to them. In fact, the relentless English demand for labour led to indigenous warriors raiding inland to capture more slaves to meet the demand. By the way, the English weren't trying to be respectful because they joined UNICEF or anything. It's because the native peoples were essential to the success of Willoughbyland. Cassava bread was still a staple, which the settlers had to rely on as well. And that cassava bread could be poisonous if it was processed incorrectly. The quote-unquote caribs also made a strong drink fermented from cassava, which one settler loved until he found out how it was made. The bread was baked until black. Then... The oldest women and snotty-nosed children chew it in their mouths with as much spittle as they can. Before then spitting it into a jar with similarly chewed potatoes. I That said, I mean, it sounds gross, but I used to work in the kitchen of a Bella Italia and we did much worse. The growing colony offered land, religious freedom and the chance of a new life. This is perhaps why it attracted a Jewish community had flourished in Dutch-owned Recife, but had fled when the Portuguese gained the colony. Jews were welcomed to Willoughby land and enjoyed an incredible level of freedom in a mostly anti-Semitic age. Living far upstream in an area called Jewish Savannah, the Jews of Willoughby land even built a synagogue in 1654, one of the first in South America. The governor and assembly of Willoughby land even declared that the Jews had with their persons and property, prove themselves useful and even beneficial to this colony. It may not sound like much, but in the context of attitude to Jewish people in the period, this was a five-star review. <laughs> five-star of David review, am I right? Others who were fleeing new regimes, including royalists in the Caribbean, who couldn't abide their new puritanical parliamentary governorship. Meanwhile, back in London, Willoughby was promoting his colony still further by offering generous land grants and loans to encourage more settlers. Indentured servants could expect much shorter periods in servitude before getting land, plus 33% fewer beatings. Willoughby was also attempting to get himself recognised as proprietor of the colony, which would effectively given him absolutist rule. But he wasn't having much luck with that. What he did manage to do was get himself thrown into prison on a few occasions for plotting the return of the monarchy. So, swings and roundabouts, I guess. Anyway, while Willoughby was in and out of confinement, the colony bearing his name was enjoying unfettered freedom. With its annually elected governor and assembly, by 1657, Willoughby land was enjoying a kind of democratic autonomy, defended by a militia. It was enjoying immense prosperity, producing cash crops such as tobacco, sugar and cotton. Trees and plants were being sold as furniture and medicine. The tobacco of Suriname was considered better quality than Virginia's efforts. Honey, rice and wax were prime products. And let's not forget about those delicious lickable tree frogs. 
And with the restoration of the monarchy in 1660, its prosperity was to grow further, as the new monarch allowed it to trade freely with other countries without tariffs. Plus, Willoughby was rewarded for his loyalty to the crown and named proprietor, thus establishing his total control over Willoughby land. This was at a time when other English colonies were being brought into the imperial fold with tariffs and trade restrictions. Well, turns out that Francis Willoughby must have been quite the negotiator. Um, sort of. At first, his demand of Willoughby land was rejected by the king's advisor, the Earl of Clarendon. So Willoughby says to him, I'll share the land with your sons. And Clarendon says, oh, OK, sure, let's make the colonies tariff-free to make sure my lovely lads are super rich. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Taking a leaf out of the uh, best-selling The Art of the Bribe. People were naturally drawn to this rich young colony. And while some were still keen on the search for El Dorado thing, not everybody saw the point. With a thriving mixed agricultural economy and seemingly unlimited land, why bother hiking upstream to get turned into pate by a man with a face in his chest? And the colony was turning into quite the happening hub. The capital of Toro Rica had a hundred houses, a government building, a chapel and a large harbour. Now hundreds of immigrants were arriving every week from the Caribbean. And as the royalists had previously fled to Willoughby land, now it was the turn of evangelicals and radicals who wanted to express themselves freely and get a suntan. Back in England, the Clarendon Code was pushing a brutal agenda, cracking down on religious freedom, freedom of the press, speech and basically any kind of criticism. Do you enjoy your stay, sir? Oh, yeah, it's very good. I didn't much care for the king-sized bed. King-sized bed, eh? A Republican! Arrest him! But for the time being, Willoughby Land was flourishing. The English government sent someone to report on the colony, and his view was favourable. He said... The inhabitants were generous and obliging. The country... Exceedingly fruitful. The natives weren't numerous and were at peace in the colony. He also thought there would be thousands more settlers in the colony if people now commonly knew about the place. And he also called it the most hopeful colony in England's empire and saw it as perfectly positioned to fight the Spanish. The only negative note from a royalist point of view was how free everybody seemed to be. Willoughby was personally urged to go and lay down the law, since the colonists had a liberty in their tongues, pens and press to sully this colony with a variety of liars. In short, fake news people. So in 1663, Willoughby land was flourishing and free-willed. It was a beacon of liberty and toleration in a repressive world. But could it last? Because, all trade bonuses aside, the restoration of the monarchy put the cat among the pigeons back in Willoughby land. When Charles II returned as king, he ordered that local authority types should carry on in their posts, but now answer to him. Now, that's a good idea. Maintaining business as usual makes for a smooth transition of power, but... In Willoughby land, it had the opposite effect. The elected governor, William Byam, used the proclamation to say that he should be in power until further notice, reasoning that elections would be... Oh, a needless and unnecessary charge and trouble to the inhabitants. Oh yeah? Well, maybe ask the inhabitants what they think about it. Except that's 
specifically what you're not going to do. <laughs> they don't need to be asked. Does Nanny ask me what time I should go to bed? To also save them the trouble of having dissenting opinions, Byam clamped down on political opposition. William Byam didn't exactly get a good write-up, being described at the time as... The most fawning, fair-tongued fellow in the world, not fit to be mentioned with the worst of slaves. Speaking of slaves, let's talk about slaves. In 1663, the Royal Adventurers Company was given a special monopoly. Phil, the Royal Adventurers Company, sounds like a laugh, eh? Sounds great. Yeah, sounds brilliant. Sounds like the sort of thing you'd send your kids to in the summer. Yeah, sounds like Alton Towers. Yeah. Except except, good. Except Alton Towers with slavery. Uh, Because the point about the Royal Adventurers Company was that they had special privilege to provide African slaves to English colonies. Now, these weren't the first African slaves in the English Caribbean, but these were the first with royal approval. And they featured such respectable backers like the King and Queen, Samuel Pepys and John Locke. Yeah. All these people were now legitimately making lots of money from kidnapping and selling people into slavery. Now, while it's important not to judge people in history by modern standards, it is legitimate to judge people by their own standards. And in that time, plenty of people thought that slavery was immoral and wrong. So there! What a bunch of bastards! By 1667, at least, there were 3,000 slaves, and that totally changed the character of the place. For one thing, a sense of optimism and industry was replaced by brutality and fear. If transported, Africans survived the transatlantic crossing, which up to a third of each shipment did not, then they had to face a short life of back-breaking labour and monstrous cruelty. And it did nothing for the social cohesion of the colony either. Many small planters had fled the Caribbean islands, squeezed out by the large slave plantation. Now the same thing seemed to be happening there. Willoughby land seemed to be turning from a free-spirited, independent land of industrious smallholders to a tyrannical land where power and privilege was held by the few at the expense of... Of the many. All right, Corbin, get on with it. Okay, a great example of this was the attack by independent-minded planter John Allen on Francis Willoughby himself. Allen had arrived in Willoughby land in 1657 and had done really well for himself. He was one of the many who saw Willoughby's role of proprietor as a threat to the rights and freedom of Willoughby landers, saying... No subject could be a Lord Propire, as it is infringed on the liberty of the subject. Being of a fiery temperament, Allen had previously got in trouble both for blasphemy and for injuring a man in a duel. When Willoughby arrived, he rebuffed Allen, but also explained that he couldn't meet him in public until Allen's case had been resolved. Not taking well to this, Allen also decided that Willoughby was after his land, something, as Lord Proprietor, Willoughby had the authority to do. Allen took matters into his own hands. He gatecrashed a service being held in Willoughby's house, slashed him with a knife before stabbing himself, claiming, I have too much of the Roman in me to possess my own life when I cannot enjoy it in freedom and honour. Eventually <laughs> eventually succeeding in doing himself in, Allen was punished for the crime of killing himself, 
by being sliced, diced, and then barbecued after the Indian style. What's that with a sprinkle of cumin? Oh, yes, and just a squirt of lime. Lovely. But despite Alan's Julius Caesar fantasies, he might have had a point. Obviously not a fan of being aerated, Willoughby left the colony in charge of newly minted Lieutenant General and Deputy Governor Byam until further notice, turning the planters from freeholders to tenants. 200 left immediately, and many threatened to desert their plantations. But Willoughby didn't just bring discontent. His party also seemed to bring a disease, which swept through the colony, killing up to a third of the population. Nice visit, Willoughby. The other thing to hit the colony with a devastating outcome was the Dutch, who invaded and captured the place in 1667. Now, there was a lot of capturing and recapturing, but after treaties were hammered out, the English traded the area for a colder, less productive place called New Amsterdam, which we know today as... Rotherham? Um... What was the legacy of Willoughby Land? Well, in a roundabout way, it gave the English New York, not Rotherham, which does sound impressive in theory, but in reality this was a far less profitable territory than Willoughby Land. England only held it for another hundred years before the Americans went independent. Yeah. Yeah, you know, typical. Willoughby Land was renamed Suriname, which the Dutch held until 1975. So, freed from Willoughby, did Suriname become a prosperous, happy land of hard-working freeholders? No. Slavery would not be rooted up, and the colony became a goldmine for the Dutch, but a terrifying place of horrifying savagery where Africans were worked to death while a few Dutch landlords lived in luxury. Willoughby Land had been an early example of how a colony might be done well. True, the English colonists' claims to the land were basically non-existent, save for a tenuous invitation by some paid-off quote-unquote Indian kings to settle. And it's not like Willoughby Land at its best wasn't destructive. They may have had good relations in general with the local people, but their thirst for labour still led to an unofficial slave trade of peoples from inland cultures. But at its best, Willoughby Land did get close to being the promised land. While warring England could offer nothing to the landless and destitute, Willoughby Land actually offered a great opportunity for the time. Cheap loans, free land, a shorter spell of indentured servitude, and at the end of that term, the prospect of a new and better life, with or without the fabled cities of gold. It's true that Willoughby Land's period of democracy and relative independence was an accident of the times. The English government under Cromwell overlooked the place. Willoughby was delayed in being the absolute authority he wished to be. But in that pocket of time a fiery spirit of independence tolerance and optimism took root on the wild coast but it didn't die when the english surrendered willoughby land in handing over the colony to the dutch the english displayed sour grapes by destroying everything buildings were torn down and the plantations were dismantled in the chaos african slaves fled to the jungles and formed their own communities known as the maroons the Maroons remained an independent force in Dutch Suriname, inciting rebellions, raiding plantations and freeing other slaves, albeit largely female slaves. 
eventually winning recognised rights and freedoms. Despite a bumpy and difficult existence, they were part of a rebellion against the government of Suriname in 1985 and remain a free and proud society to this day. Yeah, hence Maroon 5. No. Founded a colony in Guyana like Rayliana with something else Switched sides from parliament to royalist I went to the Charabies to find myself I sailed for miles and miles to become proprietor Thanks for listening, listeners. Don't forget, as ever, to follow us on the socials at ctdeapod on Twitter and on the Facebook. And we're at ctdeapod at gmail.com and our website is ctdeapod.com where you'll find articles, quizzes and all sorts of bonus stuff. If you've got any questions about Willoughby Land or anything else, get in touch with us and we will put them to our extra special mystery guest who will join us next time on... Countries that don't exist anymore They used to exist but not anymore Now you know what this podcast is for It's countries that don't exist Really?